You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. So good morning. Welcome, everyone. Um, For those of you who I've not met yet, my name is Peter. Um, My pleasure to welcome you to York City Church. Um, Particularly if you're not a Christian, wouldn't call yourself a Christian, Uh, might be your first time in church, maybe you're visiting York, Um, it is good to have you amongst us today. This morning we're going to be in the book of Jonah, um, and we're going to be in chapter 3, so perhaps you want to turn there in your Bibles. Um, And as you do so, um, last week Alan spoke to us from the Gospel of John about the mission of God and how those of who would call themselves a Christian find ourselves participating in Jesus' mission to reveal the Father. And it's from the bosom of Jesus, the place that is close and intimate with him as he embraces and rests in the bosom of the Father. We find that both our place, both our identity, who we are, people chosen, loved by him, deep, intimate embrace in relationship with him but also we find our reason for mission and our reason for purpose and our reason for doing things that God has called us to do it was beautiful mate really good really good it done my heart good this week so if you've not um, heard it yet I would recommend catching up thank you it's difficult to preach every week Alan does an amazing job an amazing job um It's difficult to come every week or week after week and prepare something and to meet with God again and again and again. So thank you, mate. Thank you. Have we turned there to Jonah? Enough filler. Yeah, give Alan a round of applause. Why not? It's a good start. Anyway, stop. That's enough. That's enough. That's enough. So we're in Jonah today. So I'm going to read from Jonah chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city. And proclaim to it a message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, Forty days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and everyone great and small put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. No human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God. Where are we gone? So, who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we come to your word, we ask, would you do the work of your revelation of the Father of God? May we find you speaking. May you find our ears attentive to what you have to say. We pray again for a deep revelation of who you are once more. In your mighty name we pray. 
Amen. So, Jonah 3. There's three main characters in Jonah 3. First one, obvious one, Jonah. So you're probably familiar with Jonah if you're a Sunday school aficionado. He's the one with that whale, I think. Um, So Jonah can be described as a reluctant prophet and often is described as the reluctant prophet. He's a worshipper of God, believes God, trusts him, but all in all, he doesn't particularly do the pious following of God that we might expect. He's not sat around waiting for the word of God to come to him, and he doesn't respond in perhaps the way that we want. In many ways, the whole point or the whole purpose that Jonah finds himself in is trying to circumvent God's will rather than follow it in this case. We have Nineveh. Nineveh's a great city, as it's described, known for its wealth and power, but also for its evil, its destruction that it brings upon it. It's often used in the same Uh, verses as Sodom and Gomorrah or Babylon. And finally, we have God. And God doesn't say a lot, actually, throughout the whole of the book of Jonah. But hopefully, as we get into it today, we find out the whole of Jonah is about God and his purpose and his goodness to his kingdom. He's remarkably quiet, but that doesn't mean he's not involved. And we actually see more and more has got in the God's quietness in what he does say becomes magnified and louder to us. So, the first thing that we want to consider is Jonah's second chance. Big whale. There's no whale in Jonah, by the way. But anyway, so the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, so the first thing we're to note is this is the second time that the word of the Lord has appeared to Jonah. And if we look in chapter 1, almost identical words being used. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is the second time that God has spoken to us. And if we're familiar with the story of Jonah, we probably know what happens between chapter 1 and chapter 3. But please humor me as we take a whistle-stop tour of some quite fun events. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And Jonah responds to it by doing something the opposite. God's word says to go to Nineveh and to preach and to proclaim to them that destruction is coming to them. To speak a word to them that due to their wickedness, that judgment is coming. Now this is one of probably the most hardest prophetic assignments that you could be given. Going to one of the greatest worldly powers, known for persecuting and evil against the Israelites, to go stand in there and say that this is what God has said. But Jonah probably one of the most unlikely prophets, responds in a way that's not all too consistent with the prophets. There's many prophets who are reluctant in their call, but when God says to go east to Nineveh, Jonah goes west. He jumps on a boat, he pays some men to jump on a boat to flee in the opposite direction. But this boat journey doesn't particularly go according to plan for Jonah, nor the sailors in which his boat he got on. God stirs up a mighty wind and the waves and they crash upon it and it looks like destruction is going to come to them. The sailors cry out to their gods and nothing happens. The storms do not still. So they go below deck, they wake Jonah up and they say, what calamity have you brought upon us? They cast lots to work out why this is happening and they they plead with Jonah to call out to his God. But Jonah doesn't. 
What they do, though, is they begin to pray and to believe in the gods of Jonah, to pray that they will not let them perish. And then they start to row really hard, and you can't row against a really big storm and a wind. And what Jonah ends up saying is, throw me overboard so that we all don't perish. So they do. They chuck him overboard after a little back and forth. But they throw him over. Jonah gets swallowed up by a big fish, and then we find this um, Jonah stays in the belly of the whale for three days and nights and does some reflection. In the belly of the, wh- of the fish, Jonah prays to the Lord and recognizes that it is God and God's act in the swallowing up in a big fish that has saved him from death in the water. And his prayer fi- ends with this. He says, but with, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, well, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay deliverance belongs to the Lord. And you get to the end of chapter two and you think, excellent, this is Jonah's salvation. This is Jonah actually realizing that it is God who saved him and has brought him. However, without giving too much of the rest of the story away, we know that our celebrations are premature. Then God speaks to the fish and he vomits him out on the coast. And this is where we start our uh, chapter three. So the voice of the Lord comes again. So after the belly of the whale, after the prayer of God, you are in control, deliverance belongs to you, I will give my ways to you, we find that the content of verse three, chapter three, verse one, is almost exactly the same as chapter one, verse one. The voice of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time and says, go to Nineveh and proclaim this. What's Jonah gonna do? Well, Jonah got a second chance, and he, he, as we might see, reluctantly goes to Nineveh. And I wonder if this morning you've ever needed that second chance. Perhaps this morning you are in need of a second chance. Perhaps you've received a second chance. Perhaps actually you've received second and third and fourth. Maybe you are Jonah-esque, that you've been ignoring the call and the command of God to you. You've been going west when you should have been going east. Perhaps there are other things that you need a second chance for. And we'll see in a moment the whole of the city of Nineveh gets their second chance as well. But at this juncture in Jonah 3, I just want us to note the extent that God was willing to go to bring the prophet back to him, to persuade a reluctant prophet's heart. The creator of heaven and earth stirs up a storm. The winds blow against the boat and he commands the fish in the sea to ingest him and then to expel him with the purpose that he's bringing the prophet that was going east back to him. Both of the times the fish's actions are crafted by Yahweh to save his life. It wasn't Jonah's time for destruction. Though going away from God, the opposite direction could quite rightly have resulted in some sort of punishment like that. But we find that God's desire to bring Jonah back into his purposes played large. Incidentally, we see the sailors as well come to turn away from their idols and turn towards God in the process of doing that. But how much easier would it have been for God just to turn his back, turn away, move on, get a more stellar prophet, one who perhaps is more like Isaiah, who falls in fears and then says, come, choose me, send me, but yet God perseveres with Jonah. After all, Jonah's going to be an instrument of God in the city of Nineveh. 
For me, the book of Jonah is just one long narrative or lesson or proof that God is relentless in his pursuit of his people. He's relentless in his pursuit of Jonah, and indeed we'll see he's relentless in his pursuit of Nineveh. He stirs up uh, the storms, he brings the reluctant back to him. And our lives can sometimes look like storms, or proverbially on the boat, or in the belly of a fish, but God uses those moments to draw us too back to him, to back to place of worship and praise. God's love for you and pursuit of you, God's love for me and his pursuit of me is patiently relentless. He doesn't give up on you. He could move on, he probably should move on, but he doesn't. And it's not in the same way that he is needy and he needs me to make him better or to complete it. He couldn't do this thing without me. I don't add anything to him. He doesn't need, somehow need me to change him. But by golly, does he pursue me and love me and give me a second chance over and over again. When I stumble and when I fall, he catches me. When I head west rather than east, he is there. And boy, oh boy, is he patient with me, just as I am slow to learn. He is good. He's got second chances for us all. He is kind. His purposes could be completed in in the word, in his words spoken and commands, but he uses the storms to bring us back to him. I find that beautiful. So, Nineveh also gets a second chance. So Jonah's had his second chance, and he set out to Nineveh. Big city is Nineveh. Jonah's experience in the belly of the fish has led him to this place to turn towards obedience, even if, as we'll see in chapter 4, doesn't particularly want to do this. But Nineveh itself is a rather intriguing place, particularly as a way it is presented to us in Jonah. It's described as a great city. This is the language that is used of Jerusalem the capital of Israel, the place where God was meant to dwell. But yet, it's very different to Jerusalem. There's perhaps no more uh, cities that are synonymous with sin than Nineveh. We said Sodom and Gomorrah and Babylon, perhaps. But you may, therefore, want to question, why is the narrator of Jonah, Jonah using Jerusalem language for Nineveh? Because Ninevite values are the opposite of what uh, Israelite values were, Yet, as we saw in Jonah, God still wants them, and he still waits for them. The size of Nineveh is also rather intriguing. So they say it's a three days walk across, and in chapter chapter 4, it says there's 120,000 population. Doing maths, there's about 200,000 people in York, and it's definitely not a three days walk across. And in fact, there's lots and lots of discussion about what this means. Perhaps it is just the hyperbolic nature of Jonah describing that this is really big. So three days walk is a really long way. Some people argue that actually what they're talking about is the windy streets through Nineveh. takes three days to walk through. But my personal musings is that perhaps the narrator's description of the city being three days walk across is more than just accidental considering that Jonah has just spent three days in the belly of the fish. Just as Jonah's time in the fish was described as going into the belly of hell, perhaps too for Jonah the Israelite going to the heart of sin city is perhaps a similar experience. Rather intriguingly, 
and I don't know if you should make much of this, but rather intriguingly, the name Nineveh is actually associated with the Assyrian Nunu, which means fish. At this point in our journey, we might want to consider that Jesus himself spends three days entombed as well. Maybe this could be a death and resurrection experience as well, perhaps. So Jonah began out to go into the city, going for a day's walk, and he cried out, 40 days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And as far as prophetic proclamations go, it's quite a strange one. There's no uh, ceiling, perhaps, with thus says the Lord. There's no alternative presented. And you've got to remember that the city of Nineveh are not worshippers of God. They're not sat there waiting for him to speak. So how do they know to whom, or indeed how to respond to this message? If I was to offer some advice, perhaps, to God and to Jonah, something like this might be more appropriate. Nineveh shall be overthrown if you continue in your ways, therefore you should repent and believe in my God. I think that would have been more sufficient and covered the point. But at this point, it's briefly worth considering what a prophetic proclamation actually is. Often we see prophetic acts or prophetic proclamations as some sort of prediction of the future. And at times, prophecy can act in that way. But perhaps more often in the scriptures and indeed in contemporary church life that we experience week by week and year by year, The prophet is actually an invitation into a future rather than the prediction of it. If we take the example of Jonah here, he says 40 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. We could take this as something that is declaratory of what is going to happen. This will happen in this period of time. And in essence, it's a prediction of the future and by speaking it, it causes it to happen. Some refer to this type of prophecy as like a magic spell, that this is going to happen. But we can also take Jonah's words to be a conditional fate of theirs, which is a statement that implies that there is going to be an alternative, that you could, if you choose to take it, there is a different path to follow. If you continue in your ways, this will happen, but there is an opportunity to change the course. I remember when... Walter Mobley came to speakers before the pandemic using a metaphor to describe these type of prophetic acts. He said, imagine that if you're walking outside down the citadel and you see someone in the road and there's a bus coming towards them and you shout out, watch out, you're going to get run over. That's not necessarily you giving them an immutable truth. This is definitely going to happen. You hope anyway. And more so, you want to be careful. That's not something that you're causing to happen by saying it. But, in fact, it's a warning to change their behavior and to change their course. The outcome can be changed by the situation changing. And I think that we would do well as a community to hear this type when we hear prophetic words and voices in the scriptures, to consider them an invitation to respond to God, to enter into his future and his promises, as we were singing about earlier. It's not that God is somehow making some prophetic voice predict something that will happen, but you get to be invited into what he is already doing. That you don't want to miss out. You don't want to change your course. You don't want to be deaf to it. So, that's what I think that is happening here in Jonah. There's a conditional fate that is about to come through. 
But why is the number 40 selected as well? 40 is often a number that appears in the scriptures very frequently, meaning a long time. Places like Sodom, when, they, when the destruction comes to them, that, that destruction comes immediately. Lot and his family have one, one day's notice to flee or be destroyed. The Sodomites are given no warning at all, no chance to change their ways. Yet here in Jonah, between the announcement and the impending destruction is a rather large chunk of time. God has built in this period of grace Plenty of time for the Ninevites to change their course if they indeed want to. But why then is the number 40 selected? 40 is often a number in the the scriptures expressing a long period of time. So, and it may not be necessarily meant to be taken literally. Noah's flood lasts 40 days and nights. Moses is instructed by God on Mount Sinai for 40 days and nights. The Israelites wander in the desert for 40 years. And we see Jesus tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and nights. In the Noah, Moses, and Jonah narratives, 40 is associated with judgment, but also of forgiveness and new beginnings. God wipes out most of the world, but spares Noah and his family and the animals that are on the ark and they start a new beginning of promise. When Moses leaves the people of Israel for 40 days to receive the law, they build a golden calf, causing God to threat to destroy them. But Moses intercedes for his people, and when he ascends the mountain again, we find that God, for another 40 days, God indeed marks them out with forgiveness and covenant once more. 40s Therefore, a number that's linked with judgment, but also divine compassion and forgiveness. We see God's judgment and mercy here again for the Ninevites. For me, I'm reminded that in the Jonah narrative that God is patient and kind once more, that destruction is not his desire, but in his love he will grant mercy to those who ask for forgiveness. From the time that Jonah enters the city, his message is very well received. It'd be nice if all messages were so received throughout the scriptures. People believed God, which is quite astonishing considering the size of the city, their nature, their history, a people like Nineveh choosing to become some sort of bastion of faith, some place where faith is um, on their lips and belief in God. So Jonah speaks this word of judgment, that this is going to come but yet they respond by belief in God, in Jonah's God, not just some any random God, but Jonah's God. And when the news reached the king, he responds in the same way. The general population has received this message, and then the king responds and issues a decree to that major change would be coming. And now I don't necessarily think that this is the only way for a message and a city to change, But you might want to consider that only a very few number would have heard Jonah's proclamation themselves. And yet we see this grassroots element of repentance and belief in God and trusting and prayer that reaches the king and the whole of the place is changed. I wonder if that gives you hope in this day and age when the powers and the rulers and the sovereigns are leading in perhaps the way that is not a king with the message of the king but yet those who hear the word of the Lord and believe and repent it doesn't go unnoticed by the king themselves the scale of their faith in God is epic 
and miraculous. It involves everything and everyone from the highest to the lowest, from the royal household to the flocks in the, in the, of sheep. But also their instantaneous conversion, how it is presented to us in the scriptures, the people believe God is very in stark contrast to Jonah's own experience. He runs away for a long time, but yet instantaneously the Ninevites believe. Even under duress, Jonah's a reluctant prophet, yet the Ninevites quickly trust in God. And it's an interesting theme in the scriptures where the outsider shows how Israel is to behave. It's interesting that we find that this is the way that we should be living, to hear and to believe, not to run away. But I also don't think that we're to copy verbatim the Ninevites' acts of repentance, but we might learn from them in this time. What we find is that this is no private confession, no apology in a bedroom, but there's a public element to it. It's not hidden away behind closed doors, but played out in community. I'm not suggesting that every act of repentance we need to make needs some sort of public, pious declaration, but perhaps we see this most evident contemporarily in our uh, uh, community during baptism as people confess and repent and turn, I trust in God. Some denominations would see that confessing of sin to a person, perhaps a priest, is a key feature of the faith. Now, I don't think we need to sit with a person in a box, but it would be wrong of us to caricature that and reject our confession of sin to one another outright. As I confess sin to my brothers and my sisters, as I confess who I am in God and the ways that God have called me and I've walked the other way, I don't need them to impart some sort of forgiveness that wasn't already there, but boy, do I need their encouragement and their their confession that God has forgiven and God will forgive. And we need to work out a plan of how we're going to walk east rather than west. So, we also see that the Ninevites' repentance is demonstrative. It happens and there's actions involved. It's more than just saying sorry and moving on, but there's a turning and there's a course of action. I find it quite, quite remarkable, actually, the acts include the animals, and don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you have sinned today, you need to go dress your cat at home in some sackcloth. But there is steps that we need to take, perhaps, that are more evident. Perhaps it is apologizing. Perhaps it is repairing relationship. Perhaps it is cutting off the arm, or maybe it is indeed fasting. The flocks and the sheep getting caught up in this act of repentance I actually find quite profound that... that the whole of creation, not just the humans, but the whole of creation both suffer under the disobedience to God, but also are part of his coming redemption. We find that this shouldn't be something we dismiss as a curiosity of old, of old times and different ways of living, but indeed as a sign to the future age when the flocks and the sheep will delight under the, under the rule and the reign of God. No longer will they too and the whole of creation be at the mercy of sin, but will be under the mercy of God. So, don't go dress your pets in sackcloth, but do consider that. And finally, it's prayerful. So it's prayerful in the sense that they cried out mightily to God. 
And this is interestingly what Jonah refused to do on the ship. Ninevites cry out to God, and the sailors do, the Ninevites do, but Jonah does not. They cry out once again, and it's again Nineveh, the Ninevites modeling to the nation, to Israel, how to turn and believe in God. They confess their own evil ways, the violence of their hands. They show this fledgling belief and trust in God that he would forgive. They repent, they confess, and they pray for mercy in the light of this hope. Yet, they also recognize that repentance, their repentance and their acts does not obligate God to do something. It doesn't put them in God's debt. It doesn't put God in their debt. If God saves, it is not because of, it's because of God's mercy and not their repentance. Their repentance does not dictate to God, but it opens a door and allows God mercy, God's mercy in. Who knows is what they say. Perhaps God will save. God is sovereign and it is his choice. Because repentance is not some sort of religious act that says, if I do this, God will forgive me. Look how good I have been. I dressed my cat in sackcloth. I prayed fervently all night. God therefore must forgive me. But repentance is an act of faith that trusts that God is forgiving and kind. It believes in his sovereignty and his compassion. It's an act that declares, I can't cause forgiveness myself, but I know one who can. And therefore, does God also get a second chance? Because we're left with the ball being in God's court now. The Ninevites have responded, they believed. Jonah's delivered his message, that, that, and they, the Ninevites have responded. And it goes on to say, who knows, God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. And then God's action, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. It's a relief, right? That we've got all the way through this story and God's acted well within his character to forgive and not brought destruction upon them. What's interesting to note here is that words that are, turned, that are, that are translated turned from his fierce anger and changed his mind are the same words in Hebrew that are used for the Ninevites turning from their sin. As we had in the King James last week translation of bosom, we have here the King James would literally translate this as repent. But unlike the Ninevites who repented of their sin, God has no um, sin to repent of. God has nothing to turn from. And therefore, I actually think it's probably better that modern translations use the word like relent or change his mind. But we are, however, left in this place. Well, what does it exactly mean for God to change his mind? Some, which I see as a religious that I can get God on my side, means that it means literally God changed his mind. Plain and straightforward is the language that God's fully interacted with the situation and he doesn't really know what is going to happen. He doesn't control or know it. He doesn't, hasn't foreordained that Nineveh would repent or not repent. So when Jonah entered Nineveh, God didn't know what was going to happen. And I think that as good students of a Reformation, and probably right, quite rightly, we find our to toes curling slightly at this because God knows everything. He is sovereign. He set out before all things, their paths and decisions, and there's not one thing on heaven nor on earth that happens without his say-so. 
So in this form, or from this perspective, God not only knew the response of the Ninevites, but caused it to happen. You see, I fall into this camp more fully because the prophetic act does not exist without divine revelation. My words do mean nothing without him revealing who he himself is. So we don't just hear something really good, then work really hard, and actually in our working really hard, we've got God onto our side, and actually he was a bit surprised when I did really good, but now he likes me. I feel that what we find in the passage of Jonah is God's divine sovereignty from start to end, but also his divine compassion and goodness. We find from, just as we heard last week with with Alan and the mission of Jesus, we find our um, place being the revelation, being, being those that have had God revealed to us, not that we worked something else, but we find ourselves secure in his intimate place with relationship. We find in Jonah God's absolute desire for relationship with Jonah and with Nineveh. So if you're Acts and you think that somehow God doesn't know what is going to happen and your Acts have got him on side, perhaps we need to consider. We also, though, have to accept that the way that God chooses to reveal himself, which is in these passages of Scripture, So we find that all human languages are stretched to describe the true reality of what God is like. In Jonah and in GD, in many other places, we find that it appears, at least from our perspective, God has changed his mind. There's something that has happened that was going to happen that now is different. So we find that the illusion, at least, of God's action is predicated upon Uh, human action, be that prayer, fasting, donning sackcloth, repentance, turning from evil, we're left with that impression. But those acts don't manipulate or control God, but yet in his humility, he listens and he trusts. And as we trust, he hears our prayers. There's nothing more beautiful than being in prayer and finding that God inclines his ear to his people. That the, the acts that we do, your prayer life does not manipulate or control God. Your asking really fervently for something or praying for days does not put your feet on the throat of God's neck so that he has to yield to you. But actually it is in his kindness that you relate to. He desires more than anything relationship with his people. And therefore he is acting completely that is consistent with who he is forgiving and gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. In Exodus 33, one of my favorite pieces of scripture, it says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God is in control, yet he chooses to be merciful towards us. In the final part of Jonah, we see Jonah's anger arise again, and he says this, that because of what has just happened, then you showing forgiveness Because you relented from doing punishment and evil to them, that's why I left in the first place. And he says this, for I know that you are gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting in punishment. We see the religiosity, perhaps, of Jonah at the fore, of I know these things about you, and I didn't want it to be for them, I wanted it to be for me. But these are true things of God. We find that God is no robot in the sky. 
We find he is no weakling. We find he is no one that just yields to our requests, but yet he chooses relationship, and he chooses love, and he chooses mercy. So for God, at least, and for us, we find that God is not just a God of second chances, but a third and a fourth and a fifth. And whilst our salvation might be a once in a lifetime event, I find that I need a second chance each morning as I wake. I find that his kindness will meet me once more. We find that he chooses situations in my life. He brings things about that draw him and me closer together that makes me, rather than going west and east and all over the shop, I find that I find secure in who he is once more. Day after day, his patience and love for us is relentless in his desire. Jesus, we come to you again, and you say, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, so therefore we draw near to you once more. We lay at your feet all things that we think can get you on our side. And we rest in your mercy and your grace. We ask you to continually reveal yourself to us over and over again. May we know the God that is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from punishment. Jesus, we need you. We love you. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.